We are beginning our series on, on human sexuality, and so very appropriate to be dedicating Connor this morning. Human sexuality, what does God think? You know, we come to this conversation about human sexuality from uh, different places. Some of us enter the conversation eagerly. Others only remember painful experiences. If we as a church family reflect the Canadian population, then according to Statistics Canada 2014, 96% of us are heterosexual. 1.7% is gay or lesbian. 1.3% is bisexual, and another 1% may self-identify in another way. One in six men and one in three women have been abused sexually. We're talking about us here. We're not talking about them out there. So this is a very necessary but also a very sensitive conversation. I pray that we will all listen to the Spirit of God as we walk through the Scriptures. What does God think? At the outset, allow me just to put forward some core convictions. 1A in your outline. God created all of us for relational intimacy. B, Jesus came that we might all have life and have it abundantly. There is life for all. There is healing for all who come to Jesus. This is very good news. C, sexual practice really matters. And we all need to grow in our understanding of human sexuality. As I prepared this message, I remembered a conversation that my mother had with me when I was 11 years of age. She asked me to read a book, Almost 12, which talked about human sexuality. And then we had some good conversation for a number of months. My mother was noticeably uncomfortable with some of my questions, but I give her full marks for trying to educate me. I had so much to learn. I also had a lot to unlearn. Because even at 11 years of age, I already learned some very unhelpful things from mostly boys a little older than I. Some twisted terms. I had much to unlearn. 11 seemed to be a good age for sex education when I was young. There had been a time when parents had not talked to their children about human sexuality. Today, parents would do well to begin the conversation with their children at four or five years of age. D, on your outline, as we move from the brokenness of sin to wholeness in Christ, we must extend grace to one another without compromising the truth of God. We come from different places. We come from different cultures, different life experiences. We all need God's grace, His truth, and His healing. E, we all depend on the written revelation of God, the Bible, to receive God's perspective on human sexuality. If we don't have clarity, something as simple as identifying gender on a passport or having conversation between two persons becomes exceedingly complex, delicate, and potentially 
offensive. The conversation in our society is unprecedented in human civilization. The conversation can actually degenerate into a power struggle, as in the case of of Jordan Peterson, clinical psychologist at the University of Toronto, who has become one of the most sought-after Canadian intellectuals almost overnight because he has made it very clear that he will not be compelled by legislation or by a human rights code to use the newly coined pronouns others insist he speak. Just to give you an example, in 2014, Facebook suggested 51 different ways to customize gender. 51. The current conversation in Canada gives clear testimony to the fact that we are actually unable to navigate the world of human sexuality without God. We're experiencing more confusion, more pain, not less. So we come to the scriptures looking for light. The main point of this message is the following. God's perspective on human sexuality is a beautiful gift. It's a beautiful gift for us as disciples and for all in society. It is a blessing we have to share with the world around us. So we ask the question, what does God say? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created human beings in his image, male and female. Let us make man in our image, God says. So we are made in the image of the the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who exists in an, an eternal, loving relationship. We are created as beings in relationship. That's why we desire relational intimacy so deeply. God didn't create a solitary individual or a genderless unit. God created us on the sixth day, male and female. He created a complementary pair, male and female. Not one, but two, and not two of the same. Being male or female is essential to our identity. Being male or female is a glorious gift we receive from God, something to be embraced, not transcended. Complementary differences and similarities are hardwired into our bodies. We come designed to complement another human being who is like us yet different from us. Our sexuality is not a choice we make based on feelings or desires. Alyssa, our youngest daughter, like any child, she grew up observing life. Uh, Mom and dad are are different. Uh, Boys and girls are are different. She's curious. She's learning body parts. The program director of the mission that we were serving with came to Brazil to visit us. He came with a board member, entered our living room, sat on the couch. We want to make a good impression. Alyssa, three years old, 
walks into the living room, looks at the program director, points at him and says, you are a man, and you have... And <clears throat> listed his male parts. So I breathed deeply, and I said, would you like some coffee? Now that we know we're men. For her, it was obvious. Today in Canada, an increasing number see their gender, the way they live out their maleness or femaleness, and even their biological sex as inconsequential to who they really are. Being male or female is a lifestyle choice. Biological features and how we express them are not fixed, it is proposed. We can choose our identity. At times, being, be being born male or female is even seen as a hindrance, as a barrier, rather than a help in discovering one's identity. So it's little wonder that we are an anxious bunch of people in Canada. Our society has scrambled the most basic and enduring categories we have for understanding who we are. We're not sure how to do life anymore. What did God have in mind when he created us male and female? Matthew chapter 19, Jesus asks a question. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Why does he ask the question? Well, in Genesis, God observes the aloneness of man. Something is not right with man's situation. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God wanted someone like Adam, but different from him, to be his helper, to be his companion, a helper fit for him. Literally, it says, like opposite him. He created someone suitable for him, to complement him. The woman is taken from his ribs. Man and woman stand beside each other. So man and woman differ in sexuality, but before God, they are equal. Their standing before God is equal. They are equal bearers of God's image. Men and women complete each other in the most profound ways. They express the wonderful duality of gender that God created in humanity. And God said it was very good. Genesis 1 verse 31. Now my wife takes the helper thing very seriously. Always helping me. When I'm driving, she tells me things I would never observe on my own. For example, these are not optimal driving conditions. It is snowing. 
And I look, oh, yeah, that's snow falling. I would never have known. God knew I would drive and knew I would need help. More seriously, interaction with the opposite sex is actually essential and to, our, to our growth as human beings, to our self-understanding as creatures made in the image of God, male and female, whether we are single or married, we actually need the opposite sex to understand ourselves. The opposite sex isn't just some strange creature from another planet. It is God's gift to you and to me. Some would argue, well, things change over time. Things are changing. Where does Jesus ground his teaching? In Matthew chapter 19, some religious leaders come to Jesus and they want to debate with him about divorce and remarriage. There's one school of thought that teaches that a man can only divorce his wife should, he commit, should she commit adultery. And then there's another school of thought that teaches that a man can divorce his wife no matter what happens, even if she just burns his toast. We laugh, but that's what was happening. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus bases his teaching on, on creation. He weaves together Genesis 1.28 with Genesis 2.24. He teaches that at its heart, marriage is a unique union between a man and a woman. They become one flesh for a lifelong covenant relationship. Now, this is hotly contested in our society. In Canadian society, marriage is a commitment that you make to another person because because of an intense emotional connection, which may not be permanent. Marriage can be lifelong or for a season. It can be legalized or common law, same-sex or heterosexual, with one spouse or a succession of spouses. What matters are my emotional needs and my physical desires. What matters are your emotional needs and your physical desires. And those, of course, can change. What did the scriptures say? Jesus, quoting Genesis, said, the two shall become one flesh. So in marriage, God himself knits together a man and a woman. Knit together emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically. God designed marriage to be a profound one-flesh union reflecting God's image. A profound one-flesh union reflecting God's image. And this changes the nature of the conversation. This is a very specific, concrete reference to the physical body. It refers to two people coming together in a very specific way. Men and women have one and only one bodily organ that has been specifically designed for a complement. And when these two organs come together, they form a one flesh union quite literally, physically, indeed even biologically. God's perspective is rooted in biology, not bigotry. Now in our society, however... Sexual 
activity is just the domain of, of two consenting persons. It can be with, with love, without love, committed or uncommitted, heterosexual or otherwise. Our emotional needs, our physical desires are now paramount. The majority of marriages begin with cohabitation, as if this were wisdom. Studies demonstrate that this solution has the effect of actually undermining the ability of human beings to enjoy a permanent, lasting commitment. Cohabitation actually makes things worse. Sam Alberry writes, Sexuality is a little like a post-it note. And the more that union is forged and then broken, the more our capacity for deep and abiding unity is diminished. The intimacy of the one flesh union offers a depth of intimacy unparalleled in any other relationship. And it demands two things. One, exclusivity, and two, faithfulness for life. To understand the biblical wisdom around marriage, we need to look at some more scripture. What does the marriage union reflect? The Old Testament teaches that marriage was designed to picture God's covenant relationship with his people. You see, God is steadfast in his life. He is ever faithful toward his people. When God makes a covenant, he will never break it. The people of Israel, therefore, are to be faithful to God and to their spouses. In Malachi chapter 2, the people of Israel are complaining. They're asking the question, why doesn't God hear our prayers? Why doesn't he accept our offerings anymore? Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. God earnestly calls for, commands, pleads for faithfulness. As disciples of Jesus, when we read through the New Testament, the imagery actually becomes more gripping because marriage in the New Testament refers to the relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Jesus, the bridegroom, gave his life willingly for us. We just celebrated this around the communion table. The marriage relationship, including sexual union, is to image the loving union between Christ and his bride. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29. 29 to 33. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul goes back to Genesis 2 verse 24. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife 
see that she respects her husband. I've asked my wife to memorize this last phrase. (laughs) Marriage, in fact, it points to the consummation of history, the end of all things. This is what we're living toward, Jesus coming for his bride, Christ with his people forever. So, God designed marriage to be a union that models God's exclusive, permanent faithfulness to us. God's exclusive, permanent faithfulness to us. It's not for a season, it's for life. And it's not just rooted in biology, it's rooted in who God is and his redemptive plan for all. Now, the sexual revolution of the 1960s championed free love. It sought to sever the link between the act of sex and the purpose for sex. Birth control technologies enabled people to think about a consequence-free sex, or in other words, sex apart from commitments and children. And in the process, over the last number of decades, pleasure has been idolized. Sex has been trivialized. People have been objectified and children are marginalized. More marriages are broken today than ever before. The number of unwanted pregnancies and abortions is staggering. We find ourselves increasingly confused in relation to our sexuality and this has not happened by chance. What we observe in our society is not a society evolving, but devolving. We are curving in upon ourselves as we separate ourselves from God and what he designed for us. So again, we need the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? In the scriptures, God blesses Adam and Eve's sexual powers. Sexual sexual union is a pleasurable celebration of a covenant commitment, and there is much more. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see, the marriage relationship was designed by God to be a one flesh union, a man and a woman united to create life, have children. That's power indeed. God designed marriage to be a union that unites lives and creates life. So here's the biblical definition of marriage. Marriage is an exclusive covenant relationship for life between one man and one woman, publicly recognized and consummated by sexual union, providing an environment for bearing and nurturing children. Well, what are the implications of this definition? You know, sex has become so casual in our society, so available, so commercialized, so cheap. What about sex outside of marriage? Well, we need to understand that sex is a sacred power strong enough to bring new life into being. Our sexual capacities are too powerful to be safe. There is no such thing as safe sex. It's one of the great lies of our age. There is no such thing as safe sex. Sex is very good, but God did not create it to be safe. It has massive private and public consequences. 
all sexual acts, both physical and emotional, emotional, outside the covenant marriage relationship, fall outside of God's design and our sin. You see, sin has everything to do with relationships in Scripture. First of all, it is to turn our backs on God who wants to live with us in intimate relationship. The second, it is to turn from God's design and His purposes for intimate sexual relationships between men and women. Third, it is to turn from the gender created to complement us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now this is a sobering word, of course. Because sexual immorality, it's an umbrella term for all sexual activity outside of marriage. We get our word pornography from the original word. All of us are included. But it is also an immensely hopeful word. Why a hopeful word? Well, Paul writes, and such were some of you. The sexual immorality described was what you lived. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So in every realm of human sexuality, Jesus offers healing. Healing. Jesus can wash clean, he can make holy, he can justify before God every person that comes to him for healing. Again, according to Statistics Canada, 96% of us would identify ourselves as heterosexual. So when we talk about sin in the area of sexuality, the overwhelming majority of the sins are heterosexual thoughts, attitudes, and actions. As a child, if I wanted to view pornography, I had to work at it. My father did not have pornographic literature at home. The internet did not exist. We live in a very different world today. Online pornography is readily available. As I speak today, I do not present myself as the one who has always walked in sexual purity. Every thought, every attitude, pure. No. I've lived my adult life in highly sexualized societies. Canada, Brazil, the United States of America. By God's grace, Judy and I have been married for almost 35 years. That applause should be for my, my good wife. I have not committed adultery. Have I always been pure in my thoughts toward her and toward others? No. Have I needed to repent many times? Yes. Could I have committed adultery over the last 35 years? For sure. But by God's grace, we are together. I don't know where we would be without Jesus. My testimony is that I have found healing and direction along the way in Jesus. 
The call to all of us is to repent of our sin and surrender to Jesus. Followers of Jesus submit to the work of the Holy Spirit. They seek to be transformed into Christ's likeness. The demands of the gospel, gospel in our age are challenging. But the grace of God, as we sang earlier, is more than sufficient for us. We can be the people, the men and women that God created us to be. We can walk in the fullness of God in this day. Forgiveness, cleansing, and healing are available to all. Jesus invites all of us to wholeness. So point seven, for disciples of Jesus, sexual orientation is not core to our identity. Jesus is. Sexual orientation is not core to our identity. Jesus is. And this changes everything. We're a new creation in Jesus. The spirit of the living God lives within us. 1 Corinthians six seventeen. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We were bought by the blood of Jesus, bought through his death and resurrection. There is power in Jesus to not sin. So all people made in the image of God, single and married, can live full, rich lives. Single and married can live full, rich lives. Remember, Jesus was single. A relationship with Christ offers grace, forgiveness, salvation. It also offers a new family community. For those who yearn for a lifelong partner, singleness can at times be a heavy burden. All humans have a strong need for relational intimacy, so meaningful, non-sexualized friendships must become the norm for us rather than the exception. We'll give a whole message to this in the coming weeks. As we, Willingdon Church, develop this kind of relationship, there'll be room for authenticity, to be real. There'll be room for vulnerability, accountability, a place for struggles and victories to be shared, a place where sexual brokenness can be healed. At the cross, our story will be one of healing and grace, not judgment and exclusion. And God is present to help us get there. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. And if you would like to have conversation after the message or come for prayer, I'll be here. Other pastors will be here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for creating us in your image, male and female. Thank you for the gift of our sexuality. By your word, by your truth, by your light, may we come to understand ourselves as you have created us to be. We need your help. Jesus, you said that if we would abide in your word, we would truly be your disciples and that we would know the truth and that the truth would set us free. So we come to you, Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. 
We come to you to be set free by your truth, to be set free by the power of your spirit from the power of sin. Your word says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we ask you, Lord, that you forgive us for our sins. We ask that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We repent, we turn from sin and ask that you transform us into your likeness. Empower us to live for your glory. May we be a blessing to each other and to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you.